I want to ask you a question. Straight out, flat out, I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. And we really don't hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. I'm your host, James Kent. I've got some sad news to report today. Um, Teal, this is going to be his last episode of Stuff We've Seen, the last taping. I know we're sorry to see him go. He's, you know been here since the beginning. Uh, but I guess on the good news, he's got a great opportunity. Uh, Teal has been tapped to join recently available actor Gina Carino to direct her in a series of historical reenactments brought to you by Ben Shapiro and Dinesh D'Souza. The first will be a thrilling Texas Alamo take on the liberation of the nation's capital with a working title called Insurrect This, Freedom for Americans Who Don't Want Their Hatred Canceled. Congratulations, Teal. We're going to miss you, buddy. Best of luck. It's been a good run, but you know, you got to go where your heart takes you. <laughs> the heart takes you. <laughs> All right. I, 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 that was a little joke. I am, I am just kidding. Uh, Teal is not going to be going anywhere as much as he'd love to take that opportunity to work with great uh, people like Ben Shapiro and I, Dinesh D'Souza, I don't think has anything to do with this new agreement that- uh, Okay. I, w- I was wondering if, if he actually did, but- But I figured that Ben Shapiro, right? He's not a filmmaker. He, he's going to get into that game and now- now he's got his actress, right? Gina Carino. Yeah. And so who's he going to get? He's going to need like maybe Dinesh D'Souza, right? To help direct these movies. <laughs> well, have you seen any of the Dinesh D'Souza movies? Come on. No, 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 no. I can only imagine. Well, I, the thing is, I can't imagine because apparently they have like these really kind of wooden reenactments. Do they? I can only yes. imagine. I mean, it, yeah, apparently they have these terrible reenactments of moments in American history. And it's it, it, apparently kind of amusing. But I, I'm not going to, it's, it's, it's not something I'm going to put my time into. Now, I, I mentioned all of this, right, in fun, of course. But, yeah. uh, you know, one of the big Hollywood topics, anyway, is this uh, Gina Carino. And I don't know if you followed this story at all, right? A little bit. She, she tweeted some offensive things. Some. and Well, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't go through everything she had tweeted. I saw a couple of them. She and was I a thought, parlor darling. Oh, she was? Oh, yeah. She's, she's steeped, steeped into this. Now, she grew up uh, in Las Vegas. Um, her 
father was a uh, like a casino executive, I believe. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, and so, I mean, she's been steeped in uh, conservatism like her whole whole life. Um, but I think in the last few years, she's really got heavily into you know the Trumpism. Right. Um, Any QAnon? She, did she get into oh, that probably, QAnon? Probably, I guess. I mean, you know. Um, and so, you know, here's the thing. She, she, I think, I think she legitimately can't understand why she oh. was, was dropped and stuff. Um, and of course, there's this thing that's happened. And I, I actually don't blame her in that this false equivalency that people on the right use and have been using, but like now – Everything is well. Look at on this side, and why are we not right. allowed? And as if uh, they, there's a not an understanding of a lot of the things that they say, do, and believe are kind of despicable, right? And kind of upsetting and offensive to some people. Yeah, I mean, so when she was dropped by Disney, I mean, she she hasn't even been able to let it alone. I mean, she's trying to throw the Mandalorian co-star. Oh, I did see that. Under yeah, the she, bus. For his tweet. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, he, you know, again, what she was upset was is that she's saying that Pedro Pascal had like at one point tweeted out the address of Ted Cruz. And, and, and you know, she may actually have a point there where that's like, why is that stuff acceptable? And what she does isn't. What she misses the point is, is that first of all, just as a warning to all of you out there who may be of a celebrity nature. Whenever possible, in your social media outreach, <laughs> I, I would just re refrain, whichever side you are, from, from using the Holocaust to make an analogy to anything, because you're just going to get yourself into trouble. You, it's just not going to work well. Yeah. And in fact, just never, never compare yourself to the victims of Nazi Germany. Yeah. And of course she said, well, what, Pedro Pascal, he, you know, he had once uh, tweeted about, you know, these people in cages. I'm like, well, well there, this is the false equivalency. When, <laughs> yeah. when, when, when an administration is fine with putting, you know, kids separating them from their parents and putting them in cages, it can't help but conjure up images of things right. that happened in Nazi Germany. Whereas... When you're persecuting somebody for <laughs> atrocious beliefs, which aren't just about, well, I mean, these are these are some atrocious. Well, it's not even views. persecuting her though. It's just like saying we don't want we don't want to hear from you. Yeah, and 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 you know what? That's the thing is, is that we've had four years of of listening to this awful. It's okay to be a racist, right? Um, and you know her particular tweet when she was trying to make an analogy of the way she's feeling persecuted and. I don't know where she got her ideas of how Nazi Germany happened, uh, but she's very incorrect, unfortunately. And here's my advice, Gina, if you're listening, there's a book. I always recommend it to people when they have views that don't make any sense about uh, Nazi Germany and, uh -huh. and not being able to see that uh, Nazis were fascist and very extreme right. They weren't yes. extreme left. They were extreme right. So when you say that the left is acting like Nazis, you don't have your information right. But they, oh man. Well, it's a okay. book called The Rise and Fall of Nazi Germany. And I know you've yeah, read it and I've read it. I've read it. it. It's, it's a decent book. It's yep. a thousand it'll, pages. <laughs> yep. But it'll fill you in on all the details. It will take you through the whole journey. And I think if you can get through it, you'll have a better understanding of what it's all about. <laughs> Not to mention, there's a lot of movies and documentaries about this. You, you, you can dive right in as long as it's not directed by Dinesh D'Souza. Um, so, you know, <laughs> uh, here's he's the a thing. Felon. Is, 
the thing is, is that she's been a conservative and I'm sure she didn't uh, just start tweeting. And so I think her point is a little valid on the fact that, you know, Disney, right? The, the, if you're not doing your homework on these people and just assuming, right. that, oh, we're in Hollywood, they must be uh, from the left. You know, I, there was a time where I didn't really care before social media. I didn't know what anybody's political affiliation was when I watched them. Yeah, I'm, I'm much happier that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, like back in like the early aughts when uh, – the Apprentice first came on, right? I yeah. watched it. I didn't really think much about what politics Donald Trump had. I really didn't. Well, why would you? Yeah. It wasn't why I was watching the show. He was just a, you know, he was an interesting <laughs> character. And so, yeah, I mean, I really wasn't thinking or ever thinking whenever Gina Carino would show up on TV or screen, oh yeah, I bet she's conservative. Those aren't things right. that I would think of. And so what happens, and this can happen on both sides, right? Is that when you are a celebrity and you start to put out all of your views, well, you're mm -hmm. giving the world a view of who you are and what you represent and that can help break the character mystique. Yes. And sure, if you're somebody that like loves puppies and is for good causes and you know doesn't want right, to see people right. in cages, people are probably sympathetic to you and it can add and you can go and play a villain and people can be like, oh, well, that's okay because I know that they really like puppies. They're really, yeah, they like puppies <laughs> you know? and they don't like kids in cages. Yeah, so, they want people know. to have healthcare access. Okay, I got it. But then when, you know, when you're a character and you're playing a good person, a hero, then they go, oh, but. In real life, she You're really <laughs> doesn't want people to have access to health care. She wants limited access to voting for people. Uh, she believes in conspiracy theories. Then, you know, people aren't watching The Mandalorian anymore. Right. It, it takes you out of the show to some extent. And, uh, you know, we got into a little conversation about this over the last week, you, you and I on text, uh, about Woody Allen. We're going to talk about him? I'm well, prepared to talk about that. <laughs> just very briefly, because it's come up again recently. Yeah, and I'm not watching that that particular show. I'm not watching that show either, but my point is just, it it's made it difficult for a lot of people to watch Woody Allen movies. Yeah. I mean, and I remember, you know, we're, we're a bit older and I remember yeah. in the early nineties when the divorce was happening, um, the breakup and it was like a big scandal. And then suddenly these allegations dropped. Right. And, yes. and it was, it was horrifying. It was like, oh my God, well, if it's true, oh my God, how am I going to justify ever watching one of his films again? Right. Um, but then, you know, for those who were in the moment watching and following that story at the time, it was investigated. And, you know, the most they were saying was that, well, his behavior might've been a little creepy, um, which by the way, as a parent, when you can cast a light on how anybody's behavior with their kid is creepy if you're in a divorce proceedings. <laughs> Well, that's kind of the <laughs> yeah, and that's how the courts. <laughs> that's that's it. how divorce proceedings work. You try to make the other person look like a bad parent. Yeah, and you know, and the thing is, is that uh, anybody, right? There was a, it was hard to have a lot of sympathy for Woody Allen in that the reason for their breakup was the fact that he was involved with her seventeen-year-old uh, <laughs> stepdaughter, which exactly. so, so that was problematic. So it's easy to to have cast him as a villain. Yeah. Um, then, of course. I think at the time, it was a different time, people kind of moved on and said, okay, you know what? They didn't look anything bad about Mia Farrow. It's like, yeah, you know, she was fighting for her reputation and she felt scorned and <clears throat> maybe she trumped up some allegations that were proved to be false. You know, you'd seen a lot of things of people kind of conditioning mm -hmm. their kids, like answer this way and kind of coercing a little kid who doesn't know any better. It's not their fault. And that's what it seemed to be. It, it resurfaced years later because the daughter, D Dylan, is that it? 
Yes, I think she, so. She got to be an adult. I and don't know. I don't follow well, this well, very closely. I'm just closely. saying, she, she came out as an adult and wrote an article and said, yeah, you know, that this happened to me. The right. question is, and of course, nobody wants to say, well, it didn't happen to you. Right. Um, and say, well, you were only six. And, for, you know, so again, it becomes this thing where nobody knows what really happened. One person, right, is lying. And if Woody right. Allen's lying, he's he's even worse than the he's the most despicable monster, right? Right. If Mia Farrow is lying or was lying then and had to perpetuate a lie and stuff, then I don't know what that makes her. It's kind of an awful thing to think of. It's kind of an yeah, but the point is he's essentially been canceled. Amazon canceled his last movie. His book was canceled. Yeah, except for uh, the funny thing is, is that you can rent any of his film, like the like even the Rainy Day in New York movie, which yeah. is what they were going to release. You can rent it on Amazon Prime now. Interesting. And all his old films or his other films, they're all available on the streaming networks. And yeah, I mean, so this word cancel, and of course, Gina Carino, and we're talking about Gina today. We're not going to have to talk about Woody. We can do it. He'll probably be dead in a few years. We'll, we'll do that on. My point was just that people's lives off screen affect uh, our viewing experience when we see them on screen. Yeah. I mean, my, my uh, viewing of Woody Allen's movies uh, are affected by the fact that the last several ones are terrible. <laughs> he just maybe should have stopped. Yeah, I, I think the last one I watched was uh, Midnight in Paris. That was his last really, really good one. He had a couple other interesting ones, but the the fact is, is that Gina Carino, working for a huge conglomerate like Disney, yeah, they're all about image. So it isn't about people. People might have gone to Twitter and said, cancel, cancel, cancel. But right. it's Disney, who she works for, and if you have to take yourself out of the entertainment part, if you were in any other working for any other corporation and you started tweeting all sorts of stuff in part, like any corporation, depending on what their own policies are. Oh yeah. They, they are trying to maintain an image of their company and yeah. particularly Disney is very interested in protecting their image. And she's playing a kid's hero. I mean, she had it all yeah. on a silver platter and it's not that important for anybody to tweet things. And it's just yeah, not. So what about what about what's his name? Uh, uh, you know, Star Lord, Chris. Uh, <sighs> yeah, I mean, obviously he's a little bit of a Chris right Pratt. wing guy too, and it will affect a little bit when I watch the guy play guys that seem like because he sometimes plays guys that seem like they're a little bit liberal. Yeah, um, but my point is that he has been pretty good at keeping his mouth shut. Yeah, he may be just he may just be as far right as uh, Gina Carino, but he doesn't he, he look it's about money and a business yes. and a career. And I'm sorry if she didn't get that, but the fact is is that she went from hero to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> that, that's what she, <laughs> That's a pretty that's a far oh, way you, down. You planned that one. <laughs> I've been waiting to use it. Um but uh but, no, but she was a kid's hero on the show. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of knew watching it uh, once like a year before it, she started surfacing with her, her tweets and it was controversy and I remember watching I'm like, well, I mean, she's just an action hero of the WB mold. I don't care. She's not really a, the, the the real big sin is she's not a good actress. Or well, actor, did, let's say. Did you see Haywire? Well, that's the thing is I watched Haywire and I actually, I have a, I have a bit of a thing for Haywire. I think it's a good movie, but she, and she's amazing physically in the yes. film as far as like what she does in the film, yeah. but she's a terrible actress. It's almost unwatchable because her acting is so bad. Well, there's two things. One, she you know, couldn't do line reading. So unfortunately, like Soderbergh had to not quite dub her voice, but he had to enhance her voice. 
I don't oh, know if you know. Really? That. Yeah, yeah. That's well known that okay, she had to deepen her voice and change it because she just couldn't do line readings properly. Uh, so there's a lot of ADR and fixing wow. the voice. The second thing is, and this remains to this day when you watch The Mandalorian, is when she is on screen, she has this habit of always looking like she's smirking. She just oh, looks like when she doesn't look like she's in the role. She looks like, <laughs> I can't believe I'm getting to be in this show. Uh, and that's, you know, so good luck to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, <laughs> it's just, it's weird, you know, now she's got, I mean, she just went down a road and that's that. And, and she's continuing down that road. She's, yeah. she's, she loves that road she's on. So, and I, and I think, I think what she also doesn't understand, and again, we're only, we're not even two months in, but what happened on January 6th was yeah. a really scary thing. And if you're even associated with that on that side and you're, and you're basically saying, you know, things like election was rigged and, yeah. And you're sympathizing with people who were trying to maybe commit murder of various yeah. members of Congress. That's a hard pill for an organization to swallow and keep you on. Yeah. And well, and we've seen that just with advertisers and people making political donations and, it, it, you know, all over the country. People have been kind of, uh, I, I don't know, I hate to use the word canceled. Oh, I know. My wife, she insists. Whenever I say that, I, I say it in a joking way. I'm like, cancel. And she's like, there is no such thing. Like, she just, she thinks it's a stupid thing. The, well, it doesn't, it, cancel culture does not exist. Right. I mean, the fact is, is that there's a great way to not even know that you're being uh, called out on Twitter. Don't, don't even look at Twitter. It's a <laughs> horrible don't. place to go. Don't just uh, stay off Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we post oh, a few man. things on our site and sometimes we comment, but Quite honestly, I just don't have the energy. I look at these people who have like 10,000 tweets and I'm like, where do they have the time? Yeah. Well, I I have some friends like that. Wow. Okay. So anyways, I'm going to segue into something okay. that I do believe should be canceled. Oh. Absolutely. I think we can all agree because <laughs> I've seen now, I've, I look, I'm 50 years old. I'm not going to lie about that. I've seen a lot of movies and I've seen a lot of crap. And sometimes it's crap and you can enjoy crap and you know it's crap right. and it's poorly made and all that. And you can't really say that that's the worst movie you've ever seen because it's almost like that's too easy. I watched one of those this week. Okay. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the one I'm about to talk to you, but uh, <laughs> okay. I, so in my history, I have, I don't count movies that I, did, that I walked out of. I've walked out of a few films in my life. I walked out of eight heads in a duffel bag. Uh, because it just, I got a free preview and it was not worth my time because it was so awful. And I walked out of a few other films like that. So I can't count mm -hmm. those as the worst films I've ever seen because I didn't see the whole thing. <laughs> but I had a champion for almost 30 years and I saw it in the theater and it was so bad. I really did want to leave, but I felt like this is the moment. <laughs> this is the moment of the worst movie I've ever seen. And I got to see the whole thing. And that was Blake Edwards' Son of the Pink Panther. Oh, I didn't, I did not watch the whole thing. And it's with that, uh, you know, Roberto Benigni, Benigni. Right? Yeah. I hate that guy. This movie was so atrociously bad that I said, even if it's not the, the worst movie, other people might say something else. Right. It's like Plan 9 from Outer Space or something. But for me, it was Son of the Pink Panther. And last year, or I, yeah, yeah, last year during the pandemic, when it came on uh, TV, I saw a good contender for that. And that was the Cats. <laughs> Oh, you saw cats? We, we, I forced my wife and my littlest, we, we, we forced ourselves over several viewings to watch the whole thing because it was so shockingly bad. 
We had yeah. a blast. Just <laughs> we couldn't believe that somebody could make this movie. It's so amazing to me that that happens, right? There's all this money behind it. There's all this creativity. There's all these smart people. And somehow like everything is off about yeah. the right. I, and I think everybody involved in the movie at some point was like oh my god what the f are we doing why right. and they can't get out of it they're like okay and of course this is what's the driving force somewhere behind it all you're going well it's a popular musical yes people love it for some reason right and that's why I watch I was trying to figure out how could this have ever been a success I don't get it as a movie or uh, well ever, I mean just watching what the story is there's no story. I, I was like, how could people spend good money to sit there for two hours and watch people in cat costumes called jealous little cats or something? It was dumb. It was <laughs> now, dumb. You, you haven't seen it on stage. No, no, no. I can't. But I just watching it, I couldn't even understand what the appeal would be. Um, yeah, I saw it on stage when I was like 11. And you liked it? Well, I, I think it, I hadn't been to very many Broadway shows and it was kind of fun and... Um, I liked cats, not, right. not, not the show, but you I like the, cats, right? I, I like the animal cats. And so I thought it was kind of cute and fun and I'm not really looking for much of a plot or story in a musical when I'm 11 years old, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just people singing songs and dancing around on stage. And I was like, that's cool. But, uh, I, <laughs> in the years since I've come to realize that, you know, that was just my childhood impression and that the it, it, it's it's not all it's cracked up to be yeah we never talked about cats when i saw it because i'm like it was so bad and i really thought i it's definitely in my top five of worst things i've ever watched oh wow but last week curiosity killed this cat <laughs> i heard it was a train wreck i had to see for myself and now i declare i have a winner worse than son of the pink panther the worst uh -huh. movie that i've ever sat through from beginning to end because it is such a miscalculation and a mistake <laughs> and it's offensive so many levels and it's just shocking that people did not stop this director at some point and say, you can't make this movie. And that is musician Sia's film, Music. Yeah. Now you- <laughs> You didn't see it, did you? Oh, no. I I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Mm -hmm. you, mainly because of what you had to say about it has made me incredibly curious because, you know, I like sometimes watching train wrecks. This one, so- <laughs> <laughs> within minutes right this is my wife and i on the couch we are looking back at each other back and forth with our mouths just kept dropping and like are you serious is this really did somebody really make this how could she have made this young actress act this way it is yeah. so it was so disturbing um and, and only because look if this movie was made like you know 20 30 years ago People would have seen the film differently. Yeah, they could. Well, I mean, there were, I'm thinking of that, uh, what was that Sean Penn movie? I am Sam or something. Right. And that was sort of the beginning of the, hmm, maybe this isn't okay. Exactly. That, that was sort of the, one of the turning points because there'd been plenty of it before that. I mean, you go, you go just a decade earlier and you get Rain Man. Yeah. And you know what? Rain Man gets a pass. Nobody, I, I, I honestly, at the time I was 18 when the movie came out, yeah. I had never really heard other than the name autism. I didn't know much about yes, it. Yes. Me too. And so I guess that was sort of an introduction, but I, I'll tell you that I was in college my freshman year and we had 
our our RA and her roommate uh, lived right next door. And when that movie came out, the roommate, she she had a close relative who was autistic and she found it kind of offensive. And it was the first time that I said, oh, I never really would have thought about that. Yeah. Uh, But looking back at it now, it's pretty offensive. I mean, I guess. I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, I, I saw it like a decade ago, and it it didn't hold up for me. Interesting. I don't, in general, I don't think Barry Levinson holds up very well. But this movie, what she has this character do, like, it, it makes you go, I don't know, like, what version of autism that she thought that that this person should have, or she did any, I don't think she did really any like correct research. And this young actress didn't really even know what she was supposed to do. And it is beyond cringeworthy. So is it mostly the performance that's cringeworthy? I mean, I assume the whole, the idea, it, the, the whole concept, thing, the, the idea, the, the concept, but what about just like, say the cinematography? There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And here's the weirdest thing, right? For a movie that I call the worst film I've ever seen is Kate Hudson. Kate Hudson. Kate Hudson, performance-wise, is not terrible in it. Okay. However, her character is another in a string of cliches that we have seen a thousand times. Oh, wow. Everything her character's journey goes through, it's so paint by numbers. We've seen it all before. There's this next-door neighbor. He's played by one of the actors from Hamilton. Also, he's the one who plays um, Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami. Oh, okay. Leslie Oldham Jr. Okay, yeah. So, you know, because he can sing and then he needs to sing in some of these songs and stuff. But the character that he has created, like they create for him, is this cliche. And it leaves you going, why are we doing this? And all of these things and every beat in this movie is terrible. Uh, beyond just <laughs> the autism thing. Plus, there's this part that's <laughs> so offensive that uh, that she's supposed to be cutting it out or something. Um, you know, again, I, I have my ways of seeing this movie, and uh, right. they weren't cut out in what I saw, is that they give the character music when she's getting all upset from the environment. They right. give her a love hug to calm her down. Okay. And it is so weird and creepy. That before I even found out that, that there, there's been a complaints about this and she was going to try to cut some of that out. Try to cut the love hugs? That <laughs> my wife and I were like, are you kidding me? That is really not right. I don't even right. understand. Well, I don't even understand. What do you mean a love? Well, you ever, like, see, you ever see, and this is actually a, a case where the person that they were, uh, the subject matter was heavily involved in the making of the movie. It's really, really good. Is Temple Grandin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Temple Grandin was actually uh, available, like worked hard to make sure that the performance was accurate. And uh, she created a self-soothing machine. Oh, yes, that's right. The hug machine. Yeah. Right. So I guess Sia must have known about that and decided, well, what if a human gives the hug machine? (laughs) (laughs) But I feel bad for the actress. I do too, because uh, it's been on the shelf for a while, I guess. Yeah. And- because she didn't even know how to edit it, because probably because everybody was telling her, you can't make this movie. And she <laughs> right. just never, she's like, I'm going to edit it till I can get it out But there. somebody financed it. Yeah. And so the actress uh, who was sort of like a, like a stand in for Sia in a lot of her videos and things. Right. She was like a ballerina and she was, I think, not even quite 15 when they shot yeah. this movie. So, you know, I think from what I've read, 
she felt uncomfortable doing this, but she kind of felt forced to by Sia to do well, this movie. Uh, yeah, I think I read somewhere that, yeah, she was uncomfortable with it, and Sia just kept saying, trust me, this is going to be great. Yeah. No. No, 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 no. Yeah, so. <laughs> oh, Sia also makes an appearance as a version of herself in the movie. Oh, well, now I've got to see it. You got to, because I don't want to tell you what that plot line is, but it is another <laughs> major mistake. Uh, and again, this is a film that should be taught in schools about what you don't want to do from a script writing standpoint or just even making a movie standpoint. Right. That if you have any of the ideas displayed in this film, you will walk away. <laughs> okay. I kind of can't wait to see it. Yeah. But I bet you, this is my bet, that you don't make it through the pasta because you're going to be like horrified. Okay. I mean, maybe it may, maybe it's a challenge. I gave you a challenge recently. Which one was that? <laughs> the bed sitting room. I, okay. So I don't, I, you know, again, who knows where this episode is going to go, but I didn't know it was going to go there. I have not quite finished that, okay. but what I did watch and I was shocked at how, how terrible I thought it was. Uh huh. And maybe it's again, because of the times was the knack and how to get it. Oh, you didn't like it, huh? When was the last time you saw that movie? It's been a long time. Oh, I bet you saw it when you were a teenager and yeah. you didn't realize how just grotesquely misogynistic the entire movie is. Okay. Yeah. I probably didn't realize that as a teenager. And it, it, it is like based on a play and it feels that way, but the end, it features this whole weird thing with the lead actress going around saying that she's been raped. That's right. Yeah. It is It doesn't play very well in 2021. It just does not play well in 2021. It didn't play well in 2020, 2019. Maybe we'll go back until like- But when it, it came out in like 66, right? Yeah, but I mean, it was, I, I don't know, man. It was like, I kept on thinking that this movie would have been better if all the characters in the film were played by the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they wouldn't have done something that misogynistic probably. No, but it would have been a lot more entertaining whenever this was- um, so yeah, I haven't quite finished the bed sitting room. Uh, I, I will take that challenge, but I was like, oh my God, this, this knack movie horrifying. Yeah. Uh, now I think we're running a little scat on time. So I, I will say <laughs> that I was going to have another warning for people. It's on HBO max now, and it's not very good is the little things that Jared Leto. And oh yes. Denzel and Washington. And Denzel. Like. Yeah. It's horrible. Horrible or just? Oh no 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 no! It's horrible. And by the end of it, it gets it's really horrible. And who he, directed it? Uh, directed by the guy who did the Blind Side. Oh oh oh! John Lee Hancock. Yes, it's based on a screenplay that he wrote in the early nineties, and okay. he probably should have kept it as a screenplay that never made it out. Yeah. Now he wrote a screenplay for a movie that I think is underrated. Well, we've talked about that one before yeah. too. A Perfect World. A Perfect World. Yeah. Oh, he hit it big once. <laughs> and it's funny because Clint Eastwood was going to direct at one point, And this does feel like it's something that could have been a Clint Eastwood movie. He probably okay, would have started it instead of Denzel Washington back then. And I'm trying to think of who would have played the creepy Jared Leto character, but uh, maybe Christian Slater. <laughs> uh, and, and Remy Malek. Oh my God, that guy's he's, he's, he's like one of the detectives, but he's creepy in the movie just because he's creepy Remy Malek. <laughs> you find him creepy? Okay. I mean, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of creepy on his TV show. Have you oh, seen oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Mr. Robot? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he's very creepy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so enough of the bad. Boy, we've had a half an hour of like, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, I think, what, I will think we're going to both agree that it was is, is a good movie. It's a film that we've both been dying to see, and it's finally yeah. uh, popped on Hulu, uh, uh, you know, last weekend, was uh, director Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. Yeah. And that's a film that stars Francis McDermott, um, mostly non-actors besides her, except for David Strathairn is in it. Yep. Uh, it's based on a nonfiction book by Jessica Bruder, and it takes place in about t- around 2012. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's basically a, a woman who uh, her husband was involved in a mining operation in Empire, Nevada, and then the- the mind shut down. The mind shut down. I don't know if it shut down. He had died. It, he had died, but it's unclear whether he died before or after. No, it it's, it, it's it, he died and then she stayed on. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Then she it closed on. and because the, they own all the property that basically she was kicked out of her house because she didn't own it. Yeah. It was just a company house. Yeah, yeah. She probably paid, you know, like when he died. Probably, well, sure. He paid rent and stuff, but. Yeah. Uh, uh, so instead, I mean, she's a person who this wasn't her plan. Um, she didn't really have a lot of, she liked it. She just, everything she wanted in life was right there. Yeah. And so then basically she found herself in a van that she kind of outfitted that she could live in and she becomes part of this sort of nomad group of people, uh, kind of traveling from place to place for seasonal work. And I think what's interesting is the way you just described it, um, some of those things, are not known at the beginning of the movie. The movie, no, that's a synopsis, right? You have to learn. Her it's journey. a synopsis, and 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 so it's very interesting structurally because it starts when she's already on the road doing seasonal work, living out of her van. Yeah, and so you don't see the transition. The transition is revealed to you over the course of the film. Yes, and she's also. It takes place. It kind of it goes in a cycle of a year, basically. Yes, yes. It basically, takes place over the course of a year. It's sort of a slow information feed on her character. You learn more about her past, and I feel like the ending made me understand the beginning. Yes, because there's things that she talks about uh, throughout the film, and then at the end, sort of catharsis for her when she goes back. Exactly. You picture in your head what she's talking about, but then you get to see it and it's like the reality is much different, I think. The reality is much different, but it's also sort of this moment with the doorway shot at the end. Oh, yeah. I loved it. Of course. I love the doorway shot. Um, But what's interesting about this doorway shot as opposed to like the searchers or something is that the camera moves through the doorway. Yes. And so- we follow her out of the house into the desert. Yeah. And of course, you know, so her character talks about what she really, like she had everything for her yes. that she wanted in life. And she talked about how she had this beautiful desert view from her backyard. Yeah. And when you get to see that she really lived in a, a very tiny track home yeah, and she has a very small backyard that's got a big fence and then there's desert. And then there's desert. And it is Probably pretty at certain times today, but it just wasn't what you're picturing, I think, when she tells the story. But you realized that for her, that was life. That was that was life. Yeah. And I just think it's really amazing. It, I, I, so I had some expectations going into this movie. And I didn't really, because I tried to not really, other than I knew that a, a basic part of the story, I didn't really know what was going to happen in the film. I didn't really either. Okay. But here was my expectation. 
uh, or I, uh, several of them. One of them was that we would see the transition at the beginning. I don't, I don't know if I knew what, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I knew that or not. Uh, I mean, just here, I'll read you the IMD, IMDB tagline. Okay. After losing everything in the Great Recession, a woman embarks on a journey through the American West, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. Uh, so you're expecting those classic scenes where, sorry, uh, Fern, you're going to have to leave the house now, and then exactly. suddenly, and then yes. I'm going to so, have to get a van and all that stuff that a normal like Hollywood movie might give you. So over and over again in this movie, I had expectations like that. Because I'm trained to look at normal Hollywood movies. Yeah. And, and and the movie constantly goes against my expectations. My wife had one, which was she expected at some point uh, the Francis McDormand character would be uh, a victim of violence. Well, that's another interesting thing, right? It takes the road movie conventions, but it doesn't always go on those little journeys. It doesn't at all. But you know what does, but see, this was so great. There's enough in the movie that make you aware that the life of being a nomad, especially if you're an older woman by yourself, is fraught with danger. And it it sort of affects her character and the way she approaches people, situations. Mm -hmm. She's always kind of looking around. She's got a little bit of an on guard. And there are moments, I think there's a moment where someone's like knocking on her door and she's freaking out like, oh my God, like. You know, could this be the time something goes wrong? Right. And she's like, okay, I'll, I'm getting, I'll, I'm leaving. I'm not parking here. That's right. That's right. Um, but then there's another scene where a woman comes up to her and she gets really defensive and she's like, I have permission to park here. And the woman's like, oh no, I'm just checking in to see if you're okay and need anything. Yeah. And so it doesn't go for the movie as a whole doesn't go for in your standard movie. There's going to be a time when this, the vehicle will break down. Yes. And because the vehicle breaks down, she's going to get like, she's going to meet a bunch of characters and it's going to take a direction and it's going to be like this big kind of plot point And you just know, oh, well, in this film, she's going to have car trouble, but yet you expect that when you're driving the kind of miles and the van and the situation, and that's her yeah. whole life, that of course, at some point she's going to run into trouble. And the way it's handled in this film, it feels like a natural progression of what she's going to experience in the year. Well, and that's what I mean by defying my expectations is that there's a sort of standard format for drama, right? Drama. And like you were just describing the car trouble, then there's like the mechanic who's being a jerk and she's in this bad situation, but that isn't what happens. Yeah. Cause the mechanics, they're just like, well, here's the problem. And they yeah. think, well, like from their point of view, right. And this is what I think is a very interesting part of this movie is there's two worlds, the world that she's living in, this yes. nomad world. And then there's the world that everybody considers what, what, what you're supposed to have as a life. Exactly. And there's that great sequence with the sister. Well, well, let's get to that in one second. Is that that before you get to the sister, it's the situation with the car. Her car has this like major repair. But in the situation with the repairman, rather than them like, haha, we're going to con this woman, it was more like, well, you know, this car, it's not worth repairing. You should get, and they you should just get rid of it. Because in their world, yeah, like they don't see this as, as, her, as this is her home, her lifeblood. They're just like, this doesn't make any sense in the real world for you to keep this car. And uh, there's a real, there, there's sort of this undercurrent in the whole movie of uh, how people relate to their possessions. 
Right. She can only take so much with her out of the um, storage. And she takes a few items that mean something personal to her. Yes. And of course, at some point, something happens to one of those items. Yep. And you just feel like, I mean, the, the performance that Frances McDormand does. It's an, it's an astounding performance. Like, I mean, I, do, you, do you think that she may have like, I don't know whether she gained weight and then lost weight so that she'd have a little bit more of a loose looseness in her skin oh interesting because huh. she has such a lived-in look yes. in her skin it tells so much in the facial gestures she makes yeah and you feel her at many times wanting to just like melt down or get angry uh-huh. and all of these things that she does and you feel what's going on inside the character without her having to say a thing well and then there's that amazing sequence when they're in the badlands and she kind of runs off by herself like a little kid Oh, and you know, it's funny. Okay, so that's a good moment to mention uh, director Chloe Zhao. After this film, I'd seen, and you'd seen, and we both praised The Rider. Yes, it was on my top 10 for that year. Uh, It has aged well. I still love the movie. Uh, Yeah. And so she, her thing is that she likes to kind of create little dramas involving real people and kind of telling fictionalized versions of their lives. And in, and in many ways, that's the case here. She actually is working off a novel and many of the actors in- Well, it's the, a nonfiction the, book, right? Nonfiction. So many of the people that are actors in the film are actually versions of themselves. And well, and and her friend- uh, Swanky. Linda, well, Swanky, but I was thinking about Linda May, who's- Oh, right. The other one. That she spends sort of the most time with or runs into the most over the course of the film. Right. Um, and she was uh, one of the characters in the book, Linda May. Ah, and, and so are a lot of the other people. Like she kind of, they did an audition process and kind of put the best performers in the movie. Yes. Um, so then, so there's a process that she has that she began with her first feature, which is songs, my brother's Tommy. And I got to watch that. Oh, it's good. Oh, good. I, I haven't gotten to see it yet. Yeah. I think it's a beginning for her. I, I right. don't think it's as strong as the other two films. However, what I was surprised, because it takes place in the Badlands. Right. And there's a scene that is in those rocks. So I'm wondering if Chloe Zhao is like kind of drawn to that amazing mis- mystical area. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was cool for me, that part, because I was like, oh, I stayed in that campground. Wow, I've always wanted to go to the Badlands. Yeah, I stayed in the campground that they're working at. And I mean, this is another thing this movie did, alerted me, got me thinking about things in a different way. Is like, I don't really think about the people who are working at the park, like what their lives are, or like at Wall Drug. I've been to Wall Drug, right? They're working at Wall Drug. I, I, I don't really think what their lives are like outside of that. Well, so you said this, so, and that actually will bring us to when, when she goes to visit her sister, because she needs yeah. money to fix her car. And it's, again, we look at this idea, and this is what the movie I think brings up. And it's why I love the movie. Look, the movie's not probably entertaining the way other films might be entertaining. I tried to show this to my daughter. She checked out after 15 minutes and said, this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. But it's a film that asks, it doesn't say it asks questions, but it gets you asking questions. And yes. it's this idea uh, there's a few ideas I feel like is that the idea of what it is to be an American, yeah. what it is to be a human being, mm-hmm. and the role of work in placing value on life and what it what is success. Because right. when you think about 
you don't really think about the people you interact with at, like you said, the parks or at the wall drug or the people that might be packaging your stuff at Amazon. Yeah. And you just assume, well, I don't know what their living situation is, but they just must have a house and a family and they're just doing anything they can to support themselves. Yeah. You don't necessarily think that there might be a group of people that are traveling around and they're just- they're migrant workers. Yeah. And, and the thing about her working is that, I mean, I don't know if she was really working. At, she sounds like she had various jobs over the years yes. at, at the mines. But when she goes to work at these places, work allows her to kind of continue traveling around. Well, and at one point early on, she just says, I like working. Yeah, and that's the whole thing is that, and I think this is really where, this movie is not political. You don't know what these people are like. I like that it was set in 2012 because you don't have to see like Trump hats right. and other <laughs> things. So you don't have to focus on what these people's politics are, but it does get to the heart of what I think the argument that a lot of people in America, in the Midwest and in the South, as far as the Southwest were concerned is that when you're somebody who it's not about rising to the peak of a career or any of this stuff. Right. You just, you want to feel value, you want to work and you want to have a jobs that are out there to work. And so for people in this yeah. mining, they liked mining, they felt value in it and they liked where they lived and they didn't feel like they had to go um, off and have a big mansion right. <laughs> or any of these things. And so when that was taken away from them, it took away a part of their identity. Exactly. And that's why I think it's so important, those objects they keep in their vans. And and like Swanky has a few things in her van, right? Yes. That she shows, uh, that she shows to the main character. Uh, yeah, they, they're holding on to these things, but at the same time, they've all kind of chosen to live a little bit outside of society while at the same time still being part of it, like having the jobs, they've got cell phones, they're on Facebook. Yeah, they still, your family is still important to them. Yes. And that's what you discover when you go in the scene when Frances McDormand has to go visit her sister for the money. Yeah. There's a lot of talk and debate and you can feel that pressure that Frances has that the rest of her family can't understand why she would live this way. Right. And then it's by choice. It's, and you know, that's the other thing here. I think that's important. These people are not necessarily victims of global capitalism. Uh, I mean, they are to some extent, but they've also made a choice based on a personal philosophy and, and a way that they want to live. Well, yeah, because Francis has two opportunities in the movie to live the, 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 the so-called normal life. Yeah, or or the 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 settled life, the I settled guess. life. Like people feel because they feel bad for or whatever. But what where I think the most important scene in the entire film to understand what her character Fern's all about yeah. is the scene with her and her nomad friends go to the RV show. Oh yes, they walk in and they see this palace of an RV, and so for them that's the McMansion. If they had right. the money. They would live in something like that and travel around. And travel around. Yeah. They've made this choice to be nomads, basically. Yeah. They weren't going to, like, she wouldn't suddenly, oh, if I had the money, I would have a house. If she had the money, she'd have this awesome vehicle. <laughs> she'd have, yeah, a bigger camper, basically. So, I mean, uh, it really, to me, was a very profound uh, experience of a movie because it took me into a world that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. It made me really identify and, and empathize with. Uh, Francis McDormand's character. Mm -hmm. You really like her character. And yeah, 
you know, and you like the people there. And one of the great things that this director, Chloe Zhao, and she's like kind of perfected this now with with this her third film is anybody who thinks you can just take non-actors and make them actors and make it not feel fake, they they are kidding themselves. They have no idea how hard that can be and how she's able to do it It is a pretty fantastic uh, job directing. It absolutely is that she's able to, yeah, basically do a fiction mixed with documentary kind of at the same time. There, there's these, and, and, and to actually have them come together and work well together. Like I really got into some of these side characters. I loved it. I mean, I, I was very fascinated. It really draws you in over slow periods of time and you do enjoy. Um, and then when she meets up with various characters again, it doesn't feel like a convention. It feels like, yeah, these are people that were kind of traveling a certain path that they, they will circle around and, and meet up with each other again. Exactly. And they, well, and the, uh, I forget the guy's name, Bill, who's kind of like the de facto leader. Right who's sort of educating people and talking about the philosophy. He has an amazing scene where he talks about his son. It, it really choked me up a bit. I got me say. too. Me too. That was just, it, it, and, and, and the thing is the way he delivered that monologue, I don't think an actor could do. Yeah. And you know, it's also this, this idea of community, these people, it all feels like for whatever the reason, they're all in search of kind of healing themselves Yes, and doing things the way they're doing it is their method. Yeah. And I think that, you know, McDormand, I don't know where her character was going to go at the end of the movie, but I feel like she went full circle to heal. She she got some kind of, like I said, catharsis at the end that she There's needed to There's some closure. Do. She yeah. gets some closure on her previous life at the end. And I think she's had trouble letting go of it to some extent, even though she's made this nomadic choice. Yeah. And she could if she wants. Like, I think that her character knows she has choices. She could go and be, and be with her sister if she wants. She could go with uh, and be with David Strathairn's character if she wants. I have one complaint here. Okay. Is David Strathairn, who I love as an actor. Yep. My problem was that as soon as I saw him on screen, yep. I thought, and this was, again, my expectations, but as soon as I saw him on screen, I'm like, oh, he's going to be part of the story now because he's an actor, right? And so, but mostly my issue is that as soon as I saw him, I thought there's going to be a romance. Well- and I'm glad there wasn't. Or, I mean, there was a, I mean, yeah, it was like, it was more of like a realistic romance, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. But clearly they were interested in each other, but then he makes the choice to settle kind of, and she can't, uh, to me, that's one of the most important scenes in the movie is when she wakes up, she's sleeping in a bed yes. for, and she wakes, she can't sleep in a bed. She has to go to sleep in her van. She pulled the Irish escape. Yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, you know David Strathairn's son in the movie? Yeah. The musician? That's his yeah. real son. Oh, I assume so. Yeah, yeah. And his son's a musician in real life. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't figure out who all the people living at his son's house were, if it was like- That whole... I don't I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so it's a weird film in that it's not like there's certain movies that give you some kind of weird emotional satisfaction. You're just like, oh man, what a yes. great, awesome movie. This movie's a little bit quieter, um, but it's really a great film, I think. Oh, I think it's a, I think it's just an astounding film in, in a lot of ways. And also the cinematography, by the way, by Joshua James Richards is Chloe's cinematographer. And yes. they're a d- couple. 
Oh, there, I didn't know there were a couple, but they yeah. did meet in NYU. So. Yes. And when they were prepping for this movie, uh, the two of them just went on a road trip around America. Oh, um, interesting. Doing research and yeah. Uh, and, and the way they made this movie is kind of fascinating because they all lived in vans. Yes. The whole, the, the crew and everything. And they would just sort and of a very travel. small, intimate crew too. A very, very small, intimate crew. A uh, lot of natural. I mean, the cinematography, you're right. It's fantastic. And, but they would uh, like, before they showed up at a, at a camp, say, I don't know what you call these. I'm using the word camp, but before they showed up, they, her advanced team would go and interview everybody there. And then she would watch those videos and decide who she was going to cast basically i think some people who want more of a narrative structure they they look at these things as experiments but I, and of course you wouldn't want every movie to be like this but well no, no, no. <laughs> you know but i mean i love i love what she's been building to with these three yes. movies and uh, this one i think is probably her most successful in a lot of ways you know it's just it's a really great film that made me think of a lot of things even like you know when they go to quartzite in uh arizona that right. is a weird place where there was like a retro kind of gas station thing that we would always drive through when oh. i used to live in arizona if we were going to california oh interesting yeah okay. so i mean you know it, it it gets you thinking like i said you were you remembered your time at the badlands and yeah it made us actually felt like oh i'd like to go and like see america a little bit well <laughs> it, it it definitely there is something appealing about the lifestyle. I didn't, I didn't feel like, oh no, I would never do that. Or like, this is the greatest thing ever. But I understood why the, these choices made sense for these characters. Yeah. My wife was maybe too appealing for her. She's like, oh, I can totally do that. And I'm like, no, boy. <laughs> um, but here's another thing that's very interesting is that Chloe Zhao, she's lived in America for many years, but she's from uh, China. Yeah. And growing up, as a young girl, they looked at America and all of these like kind of like kind of like with Hollywood eyes, right? Right. They they imagined a certain thing that America would be right, like. Right. So then she comes here, and I think a lot of times uh, Americans and you know American filmmakers, they are people that they they see the world that most of us live in in America, right. and they miss the version of America that Chloe was so fascinated with when she actually got here and has been right. able to do in these few films. She's not just picking these places like the writer and these people, but she's just because she's generally fascinated with them. Yes. And I think that really is what holds these movies together is that the, the director has a passion for the subject matter. And so the end result feels very genuine. I think she has interest but also an incredible empathy for the subject matter it would be it would be i think a lesser director would do this kind of concept a little more anthropologically or clinically and the way she presents it another thing I, we, we haven't mentioned is the editing i think is incredible yeah, which, and she did uh, chloe Zhao she's edited. also the editor she's yeah. also the editor yeah I, th I think in lesser hands this uh could have been overly sentimental to narrative, uh, but she really has a trust in just her, uh, basically the camera, the camera's empathy for these people and how much 
how deeply she cares for them. And so it's, yeah, it's not just a, it's not just an intellectual fascination. She somehow through the film communicates this caring and empathy and love for these people. I, I would be completely shocked if she doesn't get nominated for best director, if she could win it. I think that would be fantastic too. That would be fantastic. So, yeah, so there's a high recommendation for Nomadland from uh, both uh, yourself and me. Yes, and and we should mention, yes, this movie is like the best-reviewed movie of the year. But there's always a reason for those. It's like when Boyhood, right? Yeah. It, it, there's a reason. And again, I think sometimes people, that alone could get people to have expectations that are unrealistic right. and go, well, I don't know. Was like, I, I read this thing on Twitter. <laughs> See, we're going back to Twitter. Uh-oh. And this person who claimed that they were some super movie lover and have some of these like super movie lover titles, probably has a podcast. Um, yeah. Who knows? They were like, oh, like Chloe Zhao's other films better. This was just okay. It was kind of very like Terrence Malick. Okay. So I did a little research on that. You did? Yeah. Okay. And she uh, has become friends with Terrence Malick. Really? And he watched early cuts of the film and gave her advice. That's fascinating. And she said in an interview, I come from the Terrence Malick School of Filmmaking. Well, okay, but here's the where this person who probably didn't do any of that level of research and probably has only seen like one Terrence Malick movie, right? Right, right, Is right. There's one big, There's one big fundamental difference between what she did and he did. When yeah. it comes to like, sure, these vistas and these beautiful- Well, sure, shots. yeah. You can see there's some similar types of shots. But, but. it's the relationship that the characters have with nature. And yes. Malik's about how man is small and is just a tiny microcosm of what nature is. Right, right. Chloe Zhao takes human beings and follows what their process is with the land- and how they view being yeah. part of nature and how that is important to them. I mean, again, when you go into their other films, The Rider and Songs My Brothers Taught Me, there's a strong relationship that the characters have with the environment that they live in. And while yeah. some of us might say, oh, this impoverished, couldn't they ever get out? It's it's not that simple. It's about right. a relationship with the community, with the land that a lot of people don't understand, especially in that first movie that I watched um, – it's not again her best film, yeah. but it's still it's still very fascinating, and I think you would enjoy it. Which is the songs my brothers taught me. Yeah, I, I do really want to see it. And she's again there. Most of those actors are non actors, but she does cast in a key role a woman who is a known actor who plays the mom of the two kids, mm-hmm. and so she sometimes needs to have that little bit of professionalism. Yes, well, and I, and I think you know, like she did need. David Strathairn. And she needed Frances McDormand because you have to have somebody reason that people are going to see it. And of course people <laughs> are. And you know, it, it, you could almost make a joke where someone would be like, oh man, I didn't know that uh, Joel Cohen died. And she decided to take, take, a, take, take, hit the road because she really looks like a, she does not look like, oh, this is Hollywood actress Frances McDormand. No, she does not look like a movie star in this movie. It's she beyond a pro, it's beyond like just an actor performer. I mean, she really is. feels like she is this person. Well, and I think that part of that is the working with real people because she would have to do these scenes with real people and you don't, as an actor, you have a different way of working with other actors than you would with a non-actor, I think. Yeah, probably. A lot less egos to deal with. Well, a lot less egos to deal with, but also, you know, it, it ends up just being a real conversation. Like, I got the sense that some of these things 
were improvisational in a way. Yeah, except for they never feel that way. That's what's so great. It feels like it could have been scripted. It's so well done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so well done. And it defy. and I I started off by talking about my, my expectations. I'm glad that the movie did not fall into any of my expectations. That made me really happy. Uh, And it also made me realize that, yes, I have have this built-in way of, uh, you know, I I think a lot of us do, of sort of traditional narratives and traditional drama. And we kind of expect that from a movie. And when it's not there, it's kind of like, whoa, what is this thing doing? I, I don't recognize this. But it comes through and it affects you in ways that you don't expect uh it has an emotional impact in in scenes that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see them you're not being manipulated by this movie but you might be manipulated by the next film we're going to talk about Uh oh Uh, yeah we're going to talk about i think we have time for maybe one more uh film and i kind of wanted to watch this for a while just came on Hulu as well, um, mm-hmm. and I really was wanting to see it uncut, and it is uncut uh, there. It's, it's a movie called Possessor uh, with sort of like a tagline, if you see the uncut version, P- Possessor Uncut, which for a long time, I actually thought that was the title of the movie. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but it's just the director's preferred version, and yeah. this movie was written and directed by David Cronenberg's son, Brandon Cronenberg. Yes. Who also made a movie I like called uh, Antiviral. And I haven't seen that. And I wanted to, after watching Possessor, uncut, I wanted to watch Antiviral, but I just haven't even had time to search if it was available because I've just been too busy. But uh, I'll just hit you some highlights as far as who's in this film. Uh, A favorite character, actor of mine, Andrea Riseborough. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you right now. Okay. (laughs) I know you're getting on to the other characters, but... I didn't, I'm not very familiar with her. Well, you are, because you just didn't know all the movies you've seen her in. I know, but, and the first time I really became, you mentioned um, uh, Mandy. Oh, I didn't get a chance to mention it now, but yes, Mandy. Yeah, but, she's but when Mandy. we but when we talked about Mandy, you were like, "Oh, I love this actress." Yeah, well, and she's in Birdman, and yeah, I know. I've been keeping my eye out for her since then, and she, uh, what an amazing face she has. She's a chameleon. She is a chameleon. And she takes these choice. I mean, she picks these films that I don't think a lot of actresses would would search out. Right. But yeah, she says, absolutely. I want to go full tilt. <laughs> and she will. Uh... And this movie goes full tilt. Yeah. She's also in this other movie that I haven't quite finished watching on Canopy, which now that I have a better, I have a better quality internet, like I have super high speed. Yeah. Canopy sometimes would kind of buffer a bit, but I got to go back to it where she plays a person who might have been abducted when she was a kid and she goes to visit the family that okay. she might have been her original family. It's a really weird movie. But again, Andrea Riseborough, she gets me there. I, I want to go see the things that she's in. Me too. And my biggest complaint about Possessor Uncut. Well, wait a minute. I have to tell you the other people in the movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is for the, for the listener, sir. Okay. Okay. All go right. for There's the listeners. Uh, Christopher Abbott. He was in Girls and he was um, he played uh, the lead in Catch-22. Yes, which I have not seen. Um, it's pretty good. I, I think he's a little miscast because he's almost like too much of a pretty boy 
for okay. Syrian, but he did a good job. Uh, and then Jennifer Jason Lee, who's a holdover from Cronenberg. Uh, yep. And I, it's almost like her character could have been a later version of her character in Existence. <laughs> That's uh, true, actually. <laughs> you know, the whole concept is a little Existence. Uh, then there's Tuppence Middleton. Uh, she plays the girlfriend of uh, Christopher Abbott's character, yep. and she is an actress who played uh, Herman Mankiewicz's wife in Mank. Oh, yeah. okay. I would not have put that together. Well, yeah. I didn't write. I was like, I know her. Um, yeah. And then Sean Bean is in it, too. And yes. it was shot by this guy, uh, Kareem Hussain. That those are the particulars of this film, which is very much, I guess, uh, kind of like futuristic sci-fi. Though I think it takes place several years before in an alternate world. Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly when it's taking place. It, it, it's it's in its it, it, antiviral is the same kind of thing where it takes place in a slightly futuristic version of our present. Yeah, and of course, you know, it's like it's it. it photographs i guess toronto in that weird cronenbergy way yes <laughs> well and i think this is so fascinating that brandon cronenberg has continued his father's conversation it's it's not like he just became a filmmaker he became a filmmaker who's like the spiritual successor to his father he's interested in the same thing well i think that's a fascinating way of putting it because at the first i thought Okay, it feels like he's trying really hard to be his dad, but at the same time trying hard not to be his dad. Yeah. But after a while, I felt that you put it in such a great way that it felt like he is continuing the conversation. Yeah. That Cronenberg did with a lot of his uh, sort of mid seventies to like mid eighties work, and then occasional afterwards. He doesn't really the, make films occasionally like that afterwards. But yeah, that that kind of body horror, mind bending, identity fluidity kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, I I'm dying to hear what you thought of this movie, but I will say there's a few things I want to say that are not plot or anything related, but I will tell you that as I read about it afterwards, that most of the visual effects in this film were in-camera effects. That's fascinating. With and minimal CGI. Now that you mention it, I can believe it. And one of the things was, is that if anybody's looking on IMDb, there's many years between antiviral and yes eight years or yeah and antiviral was 2012 i think so there's a lot of stops and starts on getting this movie off the ground and in that time brandon cronenberg and his cinematographer kareem hussein spent a lot of time using kareem's apartment as almost an experimental lab in trying to figure out how they were going to do a lot of the effects that they wanted to do for this movie Interesting. And so they filmed a lot of things that ended up being in the film as far as when I think, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. Some of these really trippy effects. Yes. Yes. The really trippy effects. And there's a bunch of, and it's cool that those were done in camp. Yeah. Like the whole, I mean, the cut, the poster of the movie is one of those trippy effects. Yeah. That uh, I gotta tell you what, that's my new Halloween mask. Uh, oh man. That yeah. Thing is really that's another thing. This is look at, if you get nothing else out of this movie, it does something that, only his father, David Cronenberg, could do. And that's really kind of creep you out a bit. Yeah. I found this movie just creeped me out a bit and unnerved me. <laughs> it, it's very unnerving. It's very creepy. I was expecting more horror type moments. No, it's a different type of horror for sure. It's a different type of horror film. And it's, I mean, I was worried from the first shot because I'm a little squeamish. And the first shot is like somebody sticking a needle into the back of their head. There's a lot. If you're super squeamish, I found this movie, it it, it, it tested me a bit. 
Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, in a way that his father did too, right? Where yeah. it, it sort of stretches. Uh, you know, we talked about Videodrome recently, and I feel like this film is similar in some ways. Yeah. I, I think I texted you as I was watching this movie, and I said, this is the kind of film that the, like, the 13-year-old me would have been searching out and figuring out, how do I get to watch the uncut version of Possessor where my parents don't know? Exactly. And uh, and I would have loved this movie as a teenager. I mean, I still thought it was pretty great, but I have one big complaint about it. Well, there's things I could pick up on it. I just um, I, I view a movie like this differently because it gave me a lot of different things, even though I didn't feel like the whole last part of the movie came together for me. Uh, yeah, I had a little bit of some logic issues putting the last part of the movie together as i was watching i was like wait how did he know that and well i think it gets very confusing as to what part like the, the, this character i don't know you, we should explain it a little bit i guess to to listeners of that yeah just the basic premise right which is andrea riseborough's character basically inhabits other people's bodies through a technology that implants her brain. Well, it doesn't implant her brain. It just connects her basically through radio signals. Kind of, so that she can be an assassin. So that she can be an assassin uh, in somebody else's body. And so that they do the assassination. And then the kicker is that in order for her to, to kind of uh, separate herself, she has to be able to to make that neurological connection separate. She has to kill herself or exactly. kill, or that character has to kill themselves, which serves as a great purpose because it looks like an assassination suicide. Exactly. Yep. And uh, yeah, in the first one. It's interesting. She has a lot of trouble killing herself. Well, that's where she's already starting like to n not be able to do this as well anymore. Yeah. And she is kind of falling apart through the movie and lying about it, which I find pretty interesting, actually. And those scenes with her and Jennifer Jason Lee are really fascinating, I think, where, where she's like interviewing her, doing, doing the debriefing. On. Yes. So here's my big complaint about this movie. Okay. You ready? Not enough Andrea Riseborough. Well, okay, yes. So, yeah, because, <laughs> because she, the first she's in the first half hour, and then it, it switches to Christopher Abbott because she's inhabiting his body. And I was like, Christopher Abbott's great. This is a great performance. But I wanted to like. <laughs> she is so fascinating to watch. Yes. That yeah, when she's not on the screen, you want her back. But obviously, I understand why she couldn't be. Well, no, I understand why she couldn't be. I mean, it, it's it's not really a complaint about the movie. It's just that she is so good and so interesting to watch that when she's not on screen, I miss her. And and again, I had some issues with the denouement of the movie. It gets a little bit. It gets a little. It gets a little messy, messy and weird and stuff. But you know what I mean. But at the end, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's okay because it's sort of like how Videodrome kind of ended, but like. In 10 years, everyone's going to be talking about this movie. Yeah, I think this movie is going to pick up an audience. I th I think it's a pretty interesting movie. I like the body horror stuff. It's very nicely directed in all sorts of ways. Uh, but I think this has a real chance at being, uh, you know, something people continue to watch and becomes kind of a cult film. Absolutely. I mean, again, though, I, I don't know what the cut version was like, but I, I can only imagine there was a lot of stuff in this film that was way beyond what the uh, ratings board would accept, I think. Yes. And definitely I, I cringed and closed my eyes a couple of times. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. And I agree with this, by the way. I was reading that Brandon said that he finds it more disturbing 
to take a PG-13 movie where like a hundred people are getting bloodlessly killed. Right. And that he feels that violence should make an impact and it should be detestable and it should make you cringe and it should make you feel bad inside. So he thinks it's important for it to be very, very, you know, the violent really needs to cut through. Well, and we've talked about this a long time ago. I can't remember the guy's name, but there's a film critic who talks about uh, strong and weak violence. Mm. And weak violence is what you were just talking about, people getting mowed down bloodlessly in a PG-13 movie. And, and it's weak violence because it doesn't have any moral implication with it, whereas strong violence makes you uncomfortable, morally implicates the viewer, uh, makes you ask these questions and uh and and has a deeper impact on you and th and that's strong violence which is you know exactly what you're talking about Cronenberg doing here not a perfect movie but that's but when it comes to a film like this like a little horror a little thriller kind of gem well as far as like low budget horror thrillers go yeah this is a great one yes uh, for the genre this this is i mean yeah if you <laughs> most of the stuff in this genre kind of sucks Exactly. And that's why I, I will, t I tend to avoid a lot of these films. As a matter of fact, it's probably what took me a while to really get up and, and was wa want to watch this is that, wow, well, I don't know. Is it going to suck? Yeah. And I was in, I was in, in it right away. Yeah. No, I, I totally liked it. And I think one of my favorite viewing experiences of a 2020 movie, I, I don't know if I'm saying it's one of the best movies, but uh, of movies that came out in 2020, this one I really enjoyed the experience of watching. Well, that's exactly what I was saying about between Nomadland and Possessor, right? Nomadland is clearly the better movie, but did I have a great experience watching Possessor? Yeah, you know, that's yeah. like, yeah, it's a little different. I, I was sucked into it. I was emotionally involved. Yeah, I, I just, and I thought it was cool. I like... Uh, I like these kinds of sci-fi concepts and I thought it was, I liked the way it was done and I liked, yeah, just, it explores the theme in a really good way, I think, in terms of like where the personalities begin and end and who's controlling what and who's, what character is she in? You know, when she first comes into his body, uh, his fiance is like, you've gone strange on me. Yeah. Like little, like he, right. She is observed so that she can get all of like what he's supposed to talk about and everything. Right. But there's just, something's not right. Something's not quite right. And it might get find found out. And, and then there's problems with the technology being tuned in correctly and things like that. Hey, and another uh, film for you to just quickly, if you want to check out, if you want more Andrea Riseborough. And just, again, how she can do anything. Yeah. She is the girlfriend of Billie Jean King in that Billie Jean King movie about Bobby Riggs. Oh. Yeah, with uh, with Emma Stone. Okay. And again, very chameleon-like performance. You're going to be like, that's Andrea Riseborough? What? <laughs> I'm trying to think where I might have first really noticed her. I first really noticed her in Birdman. Okay. And then she was also, again, in this movie called Mindhorn. It's pretty funny. She plays like a cop or something, and she's pretty funny okay. in that. And uh, then she's also in an episode of Black Mirror. Yes. Where things go awfully wrong. Yeah, I don't want to get, get into too much of that. But <laughs> she, again, she looks for interesting material. Yeah, she really does. And this was... Uh well, but also, she, like, she's in the Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion. She's also in Oblivion, yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, again, she's just one of those actresses that when she's in it, like, I don't know what the movie's going to be, but I know that she's going to be interesting in the film. Yeah. I just want to watch her more because. <laughs> because okay there, buddy. <laughs> no, but it, because the performance in this Possessor movie is so interesting and the way she communicates her character's internal conflicts and struggles and you know the fact that she's lying about it and like we know she's lying but jennifer jason lee doesn't and there's uh i i just felt like it was such a fascinating performance um and now we're pretty much well, end of time I, I really and maybe it's just a mention uh one of the films that's getting a lot of oscar talk and those are going to be out in a few weeks so hopefully we'll be able to do our kind of third yeah. annual uh, oscar nomination show <laughs> This movie called Judas and the Black Messiah. Yes. Directed by uh, Shaka, Shaka King. Shaka King. I don't know. I don't know who Shaka King is, uh, but uh, that's who directed it. And it's based on a true story uh, by mm -hmm. this uh, Black Panther, Fred Hampton, who was murdered by the FBI. And I knew about this story for like 30 years. I, I remember seeing yeah. uh, the story told on that PBS special Eyes on the Prize Part 2. Yep, that's where I first heard about it. Yeah. And it's interesting that they even bring that as a sort of framing reference. Yeah, when they use actual clips from it of the real guy. Well, at the very end, but they yeah. also have, um, they've also got Lakeith Stanfield dressed up like an yes. older, and he's amazing. He, he really looks like he's 40 years old. Yeah. You know, the only, there's only one, like a picadillo I have on things. Mm -hmm. It's funny because we talked about this uh, during when we went over uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Uh, the real Fred Hampton was mm -hmm. 21. Yeah. And Bill O'Neill, the informant, was 17. And obviously, oh, wow. Daniel uh, Kaloya, that plays Fred Hampton and Lakeith Stanfield, who plays Bill O'Neill, are not 21 and 17. No way. Right. Um, and I always think, well, that would be so much more interesting to me if you actually got actors that were those ages. That were that age, yeah. Because they really seem like they're in their 30s. Yeah. And then I think that it brings, it, what it would bring, the dimension it would bring to that movie is just how kind of the youthfulness and what's yeah. lost. But what I think is an interesting part of the movie, I, I didn't love the film. I, th I thought it was good for what it was. Yeah. And it was certainly better. It's, it's, I think it's based on a play originally. Oh, really? Okay. It's better than, say, One Night in Miami, which is based on a play, or, you know, these other things that are sort of like versions of, of real things. I, I like the fact that we're now seeing stories about the black experience, uh, things that happen in history, but actually directed by black filmmakers. Yes. Um, and so it's sort of like, get, maybe we're getting some of these uh, films that just have that classic Hollywood treatment and not doing anything really different, but at least we're getting the stories and a lot of people yeah. probably don't know this story. But I thought it was done a little bit better than most just standard Hollywood type stories. I thought it had a different approach. It has a different approach. Yeah, I mean, it, it could have easily, well, yeah, I mean, there's a standard way of doing like the biopic. And, and of course, the, the title, right? Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah. Right? I think that without being too preachy, it made a great um, analogy to the Judas-Jesus story. Yes, it totally did. And so I think that fit really well. And it really did make you think about, you know, kind of this tragedy um, for both characters, I think, that uh, Lakeith Stanfield was really in a rock between a hard place. Yeah. And he really was forced into doing the things that he did. 
Well, and there's, I'm going to give this away. Oh yeah, I don't. I mean, it's a true story. I always said it's, it's a, a true story. It's a true story. And and after what I, I remembered some of the story from watching Eyes on the Prize and stuff, and I'd, I'd I'd been aware of the story, but I don't. I didn't remember a lot of the details. That was a long time ago. Uh, and I realized partway through this movie that like I actually didn't care how accurate it was. In this case, right. That's a see, that was the thing is sometimes you're like, well, I don't know if this really happened. This one, the way that the film was, it really didn't have to be as accurate. It's sort of based on kind of it took a play approach. Right. It, exactly. And so it doesn't feel like it's kind of despicable. I mean, when you, even if it wasn't a hundred percent exactly as it always laid out. Right. The, the the real thing is that the FBI, they assassinated yes. this person. I mean, like there was no other reason to go there except that they were, you know, they were like dressed as like complaint close people to go and assassinate this leader. They yes. didn't want him going to prison to become a stronger leader. They wanted no leader. They wanted no leader. They Yeah. And they basically, the FBI assassinated him. Yeah. So one thing I was going to say is about the, is the O'Neill or the Lakeith Stanfield character is, has this very interesting relationship with Jesse Plemons, the FBI agent who's his handler. And of course, it's, it gets deeper and deeper, right? Jesse Plemons is sort of like, he kind of becomes the real person that that he always was. Like, I think he was trying to think that he wasn't, that he was yes. some kind of do-gooding FBI guy. But by the end of it, he was just a guy that's like, nope, you're going to do this. Okay, so this is something I think, I don't know about the facts or whatever, but that last scene when they the two of them meet and he says, here, draw the diagram of the apartment. Yeah. And I realized after watching the movie, the FBI didn't need a diagram of the apartment from him. They could have gotten it from the building plans. They easily could have gotten what they needed without going through him, but they went through him to hurt him and make him part of it. Well, that was just like, the, but that's the idea of the Judas story. They Did they really need him to point Jesus out? No, but they needed to hurt the movement. <laughs> but to hurt them. Yeah, exactly. And that that's what they were trying to do was tear this apart from the inside. I, I actually really enjoyed this movie and I felt like the whole thing was taking place on sort of the, I mean, it's, it's weird to say this because it's, it's based on a true story, but it, it felt kind of metaphorical or allegorical. And I guess that's what you're getting at with the title is that it is this allegory to the Jesus and Judas story. But as a result, the movie, and I think this is a good thing, comes across not as a document of this, but as an examination of uh, white supremacy, the history of white supremacy, the history of civil rights, you know, and these conversations about, I mean, just the level of the white of white supremacy in the movie is astounding, and it's not that long ago. And and I think that's to me the difference between this and say the trial of the Chicago Seven, where I was constantly like, mm, yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying myself, but this just couldn't have happened this way. This seems very right. much like it was written for whatever. Whereas I didn't really think about that when I was watching this movie. Same here. Yeah. I think that would make a good for people who say see Judas and the Black Messiah and say, wow, that you know, I'd like to you know see some more movies about that period. Well, good companion piece would be the uh, trial of the Chicago, yeah, because uh, they mention in Judas and the Black Messiah uh, Bobby Seal being on trial, and Bobby Seal is a character in. The trial in that of Chicago. Movie, okay. Yeah, and and he and that character is really good. It's a very interesting part of the movie. So uh, definitely, you know, some interesting stuff. But like I said, it feels a little bit like a wards bait type of movie to me. Yes and no, because there's part <laughs> there's part of this movie, or a lot of it really, just plays like a thriller. 
Yeah, that's what I did like about it, right? It was like, you know, again, it was I, – I did still feel like, oh, you know, they're trying to grab uh, some awards. And if that's why it got made, great. But if, if that's why it got made, great. But the Lakeith Stanfield character in particular is just a fascinating mm-hmm. Character. I really like Lakeith Stanfield. Um, yeah, I found him. I know everybody's been, you know, praising the work of Daniel uh, Kaluuya, and he is good in it. Um, but he for me, good, I really I... like Lakeith Stanfield's character, and I found that more interesting. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily. I mean, both performances are great, but the Lakeith Stanfield, the O'Neill character, is more interesting because he's got more conflict. And I love how it's opened. Like, how, why, how did this guy get involved in the first place with the FBI? That was really a very interesting to me. Yes, that was. <laughs> and that scene when you talk about thriller, the scene where he may be found out, and they yes. see, can you? Well, can you hardwire a car? Uh, that was that was a pretty tension filled scene. That was a pretty tension. Yeah, and she's holding the gun at her. <laughs> yeah. uh, another good, a great performance I thought in the movie was uh, the girlfriend of Fred Hampton, uh, Deborah yes. Johnson. She's played by this actress, Dominique uh, Fishback, and she okay. was in that HBO film uh, about the porn industry in the 70s. I did not see it. Yeah, The Deuce. And, oh, yes. And okay. she is great in that. Um, so I really like that actress. She, uh, it, the script does not give her a lot of words to say in this movie, but she somehow creates a character that evolves and changes over the course of the film. Uh, sometimes like you just see a shot of her while he's giving a speech and it carries so much weight somehow because of uh, her performance. The other thing is at the end of the movie, when they kill him, Oh Yes. It is amazing because the cops pull her out of the bedroom and this was just a great moment of directing is it's just a shot of her face. Yep. And you hear the gunshot in the background. Yes. And it would be so easy to show him getting killed, but we don't see it. We see her face instead. And it's a a really powerful moment. Well, also you get the feeling of the, of a real assassination and execution the way that he directed it. So I I really, I I don't think that this, uh, Shaker King's done a lot of stuff, but, uh, I, I'm looking forward to whatever he does next. I also thought that there, there's a, there's like a type of musical score that usually accompanies movies like this. And it was right. a much different musical score in this movie that I, I thought was really cool. That's a good point. I hadn't, uh, yeah. There's just like little details. Like I said, I always look for like, why is this different than all of the other like sort of Oscar fodder that I get? Um, so uh, yeah, I, I thought that this was, you know, was it my favorite movie of the year? No, but I, but I thought it was pretty successful. I enjoyed it. I, yeah, I totally enjoyed it, and I feel like it, it's actually kind of important that we be, you know, we're having a lot of conversations in this country about systemic racism, and and this shows that, and this engages a lot of those questions that we're still dealing with 50 years later. Yeah, and you know, One Night in Miami, it, it's very talky, it's based on a play, and it does feel like you're very much like a play, and it doesn't seem to try too hard not to have a play, except for it does a lot of annoying things that I didn't like, where, oh, well, there's been too many people talking in this one room, so now we need to have to find a reason for them to go out and do something <laughs> else, to be in another location, or two people being here. Right. And it also did something, like, again, when we talk about historic, there's something that I knew it was building to, and it bothered me that the movie was trying to make this connection because it did not add up historically with the timeline. Oh, okay. And so it really bothered me because I'm like, you know what? Anybody, 
anybody can check that. And I understand they were trying to make a point, but it really, it left a false note for me. So interesting. Th- uh, yeah. I mean, if you, if you saw the film, I would tell you about it, but, but like I said, again, with this movie, I didn't care about the historical accuracy. Like I, if I found something out that was, that they had dramatized, I would be like, Oh, well, because it's a drama. See, again, you can get away with more when people don't know anything about the story. It's a very small story that like history is trying hard to bury, right? Yes. And uh, so I knew about, I would if I had not seen the Eyes on the Prize series, I would yeah. really not know about Fred Hampton and how he was murdered by the FBI. And I, and I highly recommend Eyes on the Prize. That's amazing. Seriously. One and two. I yep. saw I saw the first Eyes on the Prize in a documentary film class in film school. I think I was home for a vacation week at college and it happened to be playing on a PBS and I just got hooked and like watch, you know, it was like before I knew what binging was, right? I just binged the whole right. series. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, people, this has been, I don't even know how I'm going to cut this episode down it's a little a bit. It's a five hour episode. It, it's pretty big, but we had, some, we had a lot to talk about and, uh, you know, so interesting films, Nomadland for sure, Possessor Uncut, if you can handle it and uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, it's on HBO. And if you had to pick between that and the little things, you got to go for Judas and the Black Messiah. <laughs> <laughs> you stay away from the it's a things. good movie. I, I recommend Judas and the Black Messiah. I, I think it's a good kind of classic, in a way, kind of a classic Hollywood movie, but it, it works against being too uh, too classic. Well, you know, on, off, off, off camera, so to speak, I tell you about a lot of films, but- I only tell you that you got to see certain films because other things are just not worth it. I take the bullet and I don't, but I, I thought this was a one that was worth talking about. Yeah, I agree. All right, uh, people. Well, good news is Teal, this is not his last <laughs> time on the show. I am not actually going into business with uh, my producing partner, Dinesh D'Souza. From hero to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> all right, people. Uh, go uh, watch some stuff. It's all streaming. It's all for you, Damien. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.